Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Yes, hello everybody, it's Dr. Nick here again, um, and welcome to Radiotherapy Live, online, and on podcast. Oh, with COVID lurking in the, COVID lurking in the shadows, threatening any number of second and subsequent waves, we're still lean and mean here in the studio. So it's myself and Panel Beater gazing fondly at each other through the glass walls of the studio. Hi, Panel Beater. Hi, Dr. Nick, good to see you, and apologies, I missed a hi, Dr. Nick, this morning. <laughs> I, in all the fluster of uh, getting things underway over here, I, I missed that. Apologies. Well, there we are. We, we still manage. We'll give each other a little wave, a little wave, and maybe during the program we'll have a second or even a third wave. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, now, joining us on the phone uh, in a minute will be our resident psychologist and commentator on all matters of the mind, Rainbow Doc. She'll be looking at kids and junk food. And some new research that shows that our biggest social media platforms are ignoring international recommendations. Mm. Uh, And with the anniversary of voluntary-assisted dying just a couple of days ago, and um, astute listeners might know I've been rather involved in that area, we'll be talking to the man in charge of the medicines that are designed specifically to cause death. So the voluntary-assisted dying pharmacists, they play a key role in the process. And we'll be finding out more when we talk with Michael Dooley later in the show. And aged care, never far away from the spotlight, and sadly often for all the wrong reasons. But here's some good news, a study looking at how storytelling can help with social connectedness and well-being for our older people. And Prudence Deer, our resident scientist, researcher, and psychotherapist, will bring us that story later on. But first, before all that, we have some news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. And we've got an unusual news segment today because hopefully on the phone we have a radiotherapy regular G-spot. Are you there, Hello, G-spot? Hello, Dr. Nick. Lovely to be with you. Can uh, you hear me okay? Loud and clear, and thank you very much for joining us on this Sunday morning. So tell us, why have we got you telling us about news? I, <laughs> I love how I was introduced as an unusual segment. I hope I can live up to that. Um, I, have, I have some good news, I suppose, Dr. Nick, that I was lucky enough to be one of five national finalists for the Cooperative Research Centres Association Early Career Researcher Showcase, which is coming up this Wednesday at 3pm Melbourne time. Wow. Tell us about that then. Absolutely. Um, So the CRCA, uh, who's running it, um, they're a not-for-profit organisation that promotes the communication and excellence of science. And so they want the best and brightest junior researchers from around Australia to present in this showcase. And we'll each be giving a five-minute presentation. And everyone around Australia can join via Zoom, which is very exciting because it's the first year that... um, people have been able to join via Zoom. So we can have everyone and anyone, um, even around the world, who wants to join in and listen to us. That's very and exciting. So, yeah, so tell it us, is. you said lucky enough, but I suspect there's something a little more than luck involved. What, what's your research <laughs> and how come you've got into this final? Absolutely. Thanks, Dr. Nick. I'm just, uh, mind if I cover off on the other four finalist topics just to... I'll give, you know, them, a li- give them a little mention first, yeah. 
I, <laughs> I will. So we're covering stem cells, sick beehives, surgery for epilepsy and circadian timing for shift workers. Mm-hmm. And then there's my research, which focuses on preventing body image issues and eating disorders. And just to give you an idea of the prevalence of these issues, because I think it's very much underestimated, uh, in Butterfly's latest national survey, 43% of Australians are reporting body image concerns. And this isn't just younger women. It's all genders, all ages, all backgrounds. Sorry, give us that again. What percentage of Australians? 43%. Wow. Wow. I know. It, it's crazy, isn't it? And and body image concerns are the major risk factor for the development of eating disorders, which affect more than one million Australians. And get this, less than a quarter of these people ever receive any kind of treatment. Well, it doesn't Isn't surprise me. If you've, got nearly, if you've got nearly half the population with the problem, it's not surprising they don't all get help. So what, tell me, can you tell us in a nutshell what your research has shown or do we have to wait till I, Wednesday? <laughs> That's, I'll, I'll give you a taste of Dr. Nick. Thank you for the uh, segue there. Um, what I'm going to be talking about is a chatbot I've built. And a chatbot is a computer program that can have human-like conversations with people using artificial intelligence. And basically, I wanted a machine version of my psychologist self to be able to help people with body image concerns and eating disorders between uh, between appointments. And with the thinking that one day I could maybe even retire and let the chatbot take over. <laughs> I'm, just having, have, yeah. I'm, just, I'm just speculating about why people with a body image problem have help from something that doesn't even have a body. That's, I actually think it's quite helpful, Dr. Nick, because um, people with body image concerns often compare themselves to other people, including their therapist. So if they can have a therapist that has no body at all, it actually is quite helpful. So um, we've got our cute little chatbot that's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and it's really exciting that um, as um, mental health professionals, we're embracing technology more so we can reach people where they are rather than having to come to appointments all the time. So I think it's, it's super exciting. I love the idea, I must say, because uh, um, I know that in mental health generally, we've moved to a lot of online therapies and e-help and that sort of thing. The idea that, people with, the idea that pe- people with eating disorders may be able to get some help via a virtual uh, angular assistant online, I, I love that concept. <laughs> so remind us again, this uh, this competition, I suppose it is, isn't it? Five finalists is happening on Wednesday. Do we all need to go online and vote for you? How does this work? Thanks, Dr. Nick. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go on Radiotherapy Socials and put up a post where people can register for the Zoom competition. And you have to actually vote during the competition, which is again on Wednesday, the 24th of June at 3 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time, Melbourne time. What you can also do if you're not across the radiotherapy socials, which I, I would be surprised our listeners wouldn't be, but just in case, if you just Google Early Career Researcher Showcase, it'll be the top hit and you can register there for the Zoom competition. Early Careers Researchers Showcase. I love that. One final exactly. question. Uh, five finalists. How many women? How many women? There are four women and one male. Yay. So, uh, sisters doing it for themselves here. That is fantastic. Um, 
I, I think it is very exciting too, Dr. Nick, and of course, um, whoever wins will be very worthy, but of course, you know, radiotherapy listeners, vote for G-Spot, please. Do, a, do me a solid and, and help me out. It sounds like there's some fabulous research. I love the idea of the bees and the other stuff out there, but a chatbot, oh. for, a chatbot for eating disorders, that has to be my winner. So Wednesday, after, <laughs> Wednesday afternoon, everybody jump online, have a listen, uh, choose your favourite, which will be G-Spot, um, and vote. Vote like crazy. And G-Spot, Thank, thank you so much for your time this morning coming on and, and letting us know all about that. Very exciting. Thank, thank you so much for having me, Dr. Nick, and thank you to the listeners for tuning in. We really appreciate it. Well, congratulations to Dr. G-Spot on being a finalist. We don't have to win. Being in the finals is a really good start, so well done, Herb. And I shall be listening on Wednesday and looking forward to hearing that very much. In just a moment, uh, we'll be coming back with a Rainbow Doc after these brief messages. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Hopefully, on the phone, we have the dulcet tones of our local psychologist, Rainbow. Hello, Dr. Nick. Thank you for joining us, Rainbow. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well in this current environment. Are you staying safe and distanced and sanitised and all the rest? I'm doing all that sort of stuff, yeah. Wondering what's happening to my hands with all that stuff that we're putting on our hands. I don't know. Can you can you tell me something about that, Dr Nick? I, are our sanitizers safe? No, I think our sanitizers are very safe and the alternative of not doing it is very not safe. So I'd be strongly encouraging everybody to be dousing their hands left, right and centre, particularly with this slightly scary concept of maybe a, a, a second wave or spike or peak or whatever it's called, maybe just around the corner. So yeah, I think you can't yeah. be too safe at the moment. And if you get a little bit of dry skin, then moisturise like crazy in between times. But that's not why we're here, is it? We're, <laughs> we're, we're here because you've, you've been thinking junk, particularly junk food. Yeah, junk food. Um, I was interested in listening to G-Spot um, saying that 43% of, of us have body image concerns because I've been looking at some of the stats on junk food and obesity and... Um, of us adults are classified as overweight or obese. So does that mean that 24% of those people that are overweight or obese do not have body image concerns and don't care? Is that what that means? That's a lovely piece of mathematics. And uh, I was was actually thinking about that 43%. And I presume the question is something along the lines of, are you happy with how your body looks? Or I would have thought 98% would say no. Yeah, I would have thought that too. Yeah, it's interesting how we, the questions that we ask. Anyhow, back to the junk food thing. And I actually um, want to talk a little bit about junk food and children um, because uh, the Institute for Health Transformation at the Global Obesity Centre, which is part of Deakin University, has been looking at junk food advertising and the presence of junk food promotion and advertising on social media um, and the restrictions around that. And can I just take you back to the title of that institution? What was it in? The Institution for... Say it again. It is, well, it's the Global Obesity Centre, which is within the Institute for Health Transformation at... Deakin University. Wow, so we actually have an institute specifically around global obesity. 
Yeah, well, within the Institute for Health Ooh. Transformation. So I imagine yeah. in that there is an awful lot around public health okay. um, yep. coming out of there. So what have they been saying then? Well, they're looking at the restrictions and, and what social media is, is doing around um, junk advertising, specifically aimed at children. Now, the, the World Health Organization is, is calling for regulations around advertising for children. And in on, on television, um, in sort of post-advertising, um, there are restrictions for um under 18s, what can be there, but in, and, and, and this is self-regulatory, so um, it's up to those uh, outlets to to, if you want, control and regulate what is being what is being advertised. On social media, there are no restrictions. There is a lot of advertising on social media aimed specifically at the under 18s, and they looked at 16 different social media platforms. Um, and found that there was only one that really um, uh, adhered to these recommendations to restrict advertising to young people, and that was YouTube Kids. But otherwise, um, there is a lot of advertising on social media, and given the that you know we've got nine out of ten teenagers active on social media, that they are. Um, at least half of them are liking fast food brands. There is a lot of advertising getting into the developing brains of young people. And that's a real concern. That's a huge concern. And wind back one second. 16, 16 social media platforms. I, I thought there were about three. <laughs> well, yeah, I found that a little bit challenging. I think I, I got to the end of one hand, you know, five fingers, and then I ran out. So if we do, but, but if we go back, you said that uh, on television and radio there is a code, but it's it's um, self-administered. There's no actual formal process. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean you can complain, and that the, the if you want the rule of regulation, recommend the regulation is that you um, the code, the ethical code is that you can advertise food if it is 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 healthy and also promotes a healthy lifestyle. So it has to be advertised within sort of the context of, of promoting a healthy lifestyle. Um, but on social media, there is no formal um, restriction on advertising. Is that correct? Well, there is. If you if you take a if you take a regulation for the media, it should also apply to social media. Aha, uh-huh. So it's you're saying they, they just don't do it. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's uh-huh. like there needs to be something specifically for social media because you can guarantee that anyone who's trying to sell something, if if they're not, let's say, particularly ethical, that if there's a if there's a hole, they will find it and they will use it to sell their product, in this case, fast food. And if I can be a sort of devil's advocate here, there would be an argument that the fast food industry presumably would have, which is we're just advertising our product. It's up to parents. These are kids, after all, so they don't have to go and buy them whatever this fast food product is. Um, so we're just making them aware of, of an option, and it's up to the parents to regulate. Yeah, sure. And then the children put a, put a lot of pressure to buy fast food, there's always already a lot of pressure to, for parents to buy food, uh, fast food for their children, not only because the parents are subject to lots of, lots of advertising, but, you know, fast food, in a relative sense, is, is often cheaper. 
you know. We don't all have the privilege to be able to go down to our organic grocer and buy organic foods. So um, it's, it's quite an easy... Fast food is a reasonably easy sell, despite the, the, the health um, consequences of people um, in a lot of fast food, you know, that it becomes more than just a treat. I mean, we've seen... Uh, you know, we have fast food at the Royal Children's Hospital, for example, you know, and the argument is that, pa- yes, parents should be making the choice. Um, how much do we, how much do we let parents make a choice? You know, I can hear the nanny state accusers listening to this <laughs> and saying it is up to parents. But I remember, um, and, that, and that's a but, question, yeah. And you're absolutely right about that. Having had many, many years ago a, a child in the Royal Children's and two other older kids um, who were going bonkers and hungry and popping down for the quick fast food fix was the easiest, quickest way to go. And, of course, that's what they pushed for. And as a, as a tired parent with a sick child on the ward, my capacity to say, no, we're going to go and make a lettuce sandwich was fairly limited. Yeah, that's right, because that doesn't seem like much of a treat. And uh, fast food is, off, is, is seen as a treat. I mean, do we see, if we extend this a little bit, you know, we grow up seeing alcohol, tobacco, gambling. You know, do we see all these things as a treat? I'm not sure. So what did this research tell us? Um, the, the, it told us that, these, that the, the, our young people are subject to... Um, not only advertising, but also um, placement of products, promotional videos. And if you've got people, if you've got young people with this high rate of social media use, that there is absolutely no protection of them in this at all. So did they make a leap from that to say whether this actually matters, whether there's any translation between their exposure to this kind of unregulated advertising and then behaviour? Was that something they commented on at all? Well, we know that already, that advertising is extremely powerful. I mean, if you're talking about a child, um, you know, an under eight, a child under the age of eight does not have the cognitive ability, for instance, to understand this concept of advertising. You know, parents need to be, if you want, on top of it and telling if if children are going to be exposed to this, teaching children and schools need to be teaching children about advertising and what advertising is. In other words, what you may be told isn't necessarily true. And having looked at this research, did you have a sense about, or did they mention, say anything about what they felt should be done from here? Well, um, calling for the regulations to be extended, for there to be some kind of, um, uh, if you want, crackdown on this, and, and that it also should be covering product placement so that social media needs to be um, explicitly included in the regulations. And there needs to be some kind of, you know, monitoring of this to ensure that, that kids aren't exposed to it. Because there is no doubt, you would know this, Dr. Nick, the links between diet and um, not only obesity, diabetes, uh, problems with high cholesterol, the list goes on. Um, yeah, I think there's no doubt it's been shown over and over again that um, when you have foods that are easily available, high in salt and fat and, and uh, um, carbohydrates that are quickly absorbed, 
that there are adverse health consequences. And if we start that in earlier life as children, then the risk is it does extend into adult life. So the, the thing, do you know the thing that surprises me? I had no idea that this whole um, advertising is self-regulated. So there is no external body keeping an eye on fast food outlets in terms of what they're doing, even on radio or television, let alone on social media. Is that correct? Well, the regu- it is self-regulated. You can make a complaint... Um, I don't know. One of you might know the, who you would complain to about it, but it's, you know it's not um, uh, it's it's not it's not a uh, policed no. And uh, um, in terms of what should happen next, obviously from, from my point of view, I'd love to see this kind of advertising just banned left, right, and centre. But we can't do that. Do you know what they've done anywhere else in the world to try and deal with this? Because it sounds as though we're a bit behind the times if it's self-regulation is all we're doing. Well, I'm not sure that we are behind the times. You know, just because the World Health Organization is calling for these regulations to to um, be instated, you know, it needs it's country by country. And to be honest, particularly at the moment, there are more important things going on. You and know, did you say the World Health Organization is calling for this? Yeah, yeah, as well as UNICEF. Oh, okay. You know, the the the, the world organizations that are looking after children's health and well-being on in, on the global level but what happens at a local level is completely you know is often not not in step it would be nice to think that we would be here in australia that this will be taken up and um and soon we will be seeing some kind of regulation enforced for social social media advertising of junk food for kids well, particularly with that figure that you gave, just gave earlier, what was that, the two-thirds of Australian, was that adults or the whole population? Um, adults. Two-thirds of Australian <laughs> adults are, are overweight or obese. Yeah, and two-thirds of children, this exactly the same figure, two-thirds of children are what we would call normal weight. Two-thirds of children are normal weight, so does that yeah. mean a third are uh, in that category of being overweight or obese? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so something happens in that pit, you know, as we grow older. And, you know, I mean, we can't draw this conclusion, but, you know, as the uptake of social media, as as children turn into teenagers, more social media, more appetising, more independence of choice. Yes, I'm, I'm tempted to say that just switch off the social media, which of course is a completely banal thing to say because kids are never going to do it. But having almost zero engagement in social media myself, I'm not sure I miss out on terribly much. Are you a social media person, Rainbow? Mm, a little bit, but not really much. Not uh, much. Okay, well... Um, it's because we're old, Dr Nick. Is that... Yes, well, I certainly accept that myself. Certainly not you, but um, <laughs> we don't have you in the studio to prove it, but I know that you're not as old as I am. <laughs> Rainbow, <laughs> Rainbow, thank you for alerting us to that. That's, uh, that, that's fascinating. If people want to read this, where, um, is there a website or a, a place they can go to read more about this? Yeah, if you, if you go to Global Obesity, if you just Google... Global Obesity Centre at Deakin University you'll, you'll, and junk food, it, it'll pop up. Right. The Global Obesity Centre at Deakin. Fantastic. I didn't even know that existed. Rainbow, thank you very much for bringing that to our attention. Uh, and lovely to talk to you. Maybe, maybe, maybe in a month's time we'll see you in the studio. Maybe we'll be well, exactly like this yeah. again. You said this a month ago, and yeah, yeah. We, can, we can wish. We can hope. Yes, but the wheel of COVID is turning another full circle, to paraphrase Macbeth. So there we go. Um, thank you again, Rainbow. Lovely to talk to you. Bye for now. All right. Take care. 
This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. On the telephone, we have Michael Dooley. Are you there, Mike? Yeah, Dr. Nick, how am I? Oh, thank you for your time this morning. And before we start anything else, just explain to the people listening who you are. Oh, and I'm good this morning on a, on a uh, Sunday morning, not at work. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a good day. Yeah, and uh, you're a pharmacist uh, working in voluntary assisted dying, apart from um, plenty of other things. But uh, what's your role in the voluntary assisted dying legislation as a pharmacist? Yeah, look, I got invited um, soon after legislation came um, was passed in Parliament. I got invited to help work out how the process would, would um, function. And so I was involved in deciding and helping write a protocol relating to the medications. In other words, which medications would be available for Victorians and, and how the process would work. And that was my first um, involvement. And then flowing from that, it was then decided to have a statewide pharmacy service available for Victorians mm-hmm. and that statewide service is uh, based at the Alfred where I work and we provide that service to Victorians anywhere in Victoria. So take me back, you, you were the person involved in developing the protocol for which medication should be used? Yeah, that's right because at the time uh, the voluntary assisted dying legislation made it um, possible for patients to, to seek medications to help in their life if they were in you know certain circumstances and the actual details of what medications and how and processes and what the patients could take and weren't defined at that time and so my role was to come up with that sort of degree of detail and put it into place. And, and why did we need to reinvent the wheel? They've had legislation like this in other parts of the world for over 20 years. Didn't we just piggyback on what they were doing elsewhere? Yeah, look, I think in some countries certain medications were available and in other countries different ones were, were available. And so even though it had been possible to go down this process in Europe and in the United States, for example... The medications they used in different countries were were different. Um, We were um, fortunate in Victoria to um, be able to get the most appropriate medications made available to Victorians. And so it was a little bit of work in deciding which ones were the easiest for patients and the ones that were going to be most suitable for patients to be able to take or have given to them. And was that a challenging role for a pharmacist? I mean, normally what we're doing with pharmacy is trying to find safe medications that help us live longer and live better. And you've been charged with the task of finding medications that produce a rapid and hopefully peaceful end of life. That's a big switch in your role. Look, it was a little bit. I mean, my background um, was working in oncology, so treatment of cancer patients and in palliative care. Um, So I had previously worked in, in that area and Medications are used for a range of things and sometimes to extend life and sometimes to ease suffering. And um, so it wasn't a quantum leap. It was a, uh, it was a bit unique, um, but certainly, as you know, as all health professionals know, we're, we're there to help patients and sometimes that is to extend how long they, they live and for some, sometimes it's just there to um, help with the suffering that they're enduring. 
I think that's a really important point, isn't it, that medications are about relieving suffering. We have plenty of palliative care medications for pain and nausea and so on, and this is another string to that particular bow, I guess. Um, there's, um, everything that we do about looking after people should be about looking after them through their lives and through to the end. So, yes, that, I think that's well put. Let me ask you about the actual process for the pharmacists. So when uh, a doctor has written a prescription for these medications, what actually happens? Yeah, look, we, we do two things, or a number of things, and the first one is we work with the the um, doctor is prescribing medications um, because that, that is a challenge and unique experience for them as well, for most of the doctors who may be doing it for the first time. But after a prescription is written, we wait until the patient contacts us. The patient has to contact the service and ask for us to come and see them to talk about the medications and potentially make those medications available. So we will then go to wherever that patient is, um, whether the patient is you know, in the far reaches of the um, borders of Victoria, you know, in a hospital, in, in a home, wherever they are, we will go and see them. And so, our role is so, to... so let's be really clear about that. You've got pharmacists based here in Melbourne um, with this statewide pharmacy at the Alfred, and you will go anywhere in the state? We go anywhere. So anywhere in Victoria, we will get in the cars and we will go see the patients wherever they are and when they want it to see us, and we will go and see them wherever that is, and they can invite whoever they like along, and we will go and see them. And when you say and we, so how many of you go? There's, uh, we go and there's two of us who go at a time. So there's a small team of pharmacists who, who are able to do this service because it is very unique, and you have to have certain skill set to be able to, to do it and a certain degree of experience. And so two of us will go out at a time. And, and we, we go in two because... Um, sometimes it's, uh, it is a challenging um, um, process. We have to um, not only um, uh, we have to assess patients' ability to be able to take the medications. We have to assess the patients are um, able to make decisions and understand what happens if they take the medications. They have to show us that they can um, take the medications in those instances where they're administering them. And we do that in circumstances where we may walk into houses which have the patient and one by themselves, or we may walk into circumstances where um, the house may be full of 10 and 15 um, close family members all wanting to be um, involved in the process and, and helping with the decisions that are getting made. And so, so, uh, it, so that's a scary yeah. thought that you may be walking into a household, maybe with kids running around and you're delivering a medication which is going to be in that household for some time and that medication is fatal. How do you make sure it's safe? Yeah, look, there's two, there's two components we have to do. Is One is making sure the medications are safe and, and the other one is making sure that the patient decides to take them and know how to do that and able to do that in a, in a, in safely. So we, can, we provide the medications in a little, in a bit of a locked box that we give the key to the, the patient and it's up to them where they store it and they can, we advise them what to do and where to put it so that it um, isn't accessible. And if the patient doesn't use it, which does happen, because we provide the medications, we the patient doesn't have to take them, um, and we provide a way that the patient can return them to us if they decide that they don't want to um, take them. Uh, but the most important thing for us, or that's one component, the most important thing is to make sure that the, the patients and um, their family and carers know what they may need to do if they decide to um, 
to take the medication. And I've actually tasted the medication. It is phenomenally bitter. It's not the sort of thing you'd have as um, a little aperitif before dinner. Does anyone not drink this stuff because it tastes so vile? It is. You're right. It is. It's horrible to taste. I mean, I've tasted it. All our pharmacists have tasted it. It is is a really unpleasant thing. Um, So we've had to spend a lot of time um, working with... um, uh, patients about how to take something that's really terrible to take, um, just from a taste perspective, and we find out their favourite drinks and things they like, and we work out a way to mix it for them, and and uh, that they can or a way they can mix it so that it um, gets rid of some of that taste, and, and we tell them what to do once once they've swallowed it and how horrible it is. Um, we've been doing this process now for just close to a year, um, and have um, been involved in many patients over that time um, and all the patients have been able to take the medication. Um, they give us feedback and the family gives us feedback and about how it all goes um, and we know they <laughs> have told us how horrible it is to taste but it does go, it, it does, um, they, no one has been unable um, to um, um, take the medication in a, in a way that was um, the, the way that it was designed. So that's um, good, but it is a horrible, it's terrible tasting thing to take. And the, and the whole process, of course, because we're talking about end-of-life care, it's a potentially very harrowing area to be involved in. Um, is this something which any of your pharmacists have struggled with or have they been able to find this work um, manageable? What's it been like for your staff? Look, we, we all find it really challenging and I know when I've seen the patients I've seen and, and it, you are, we're all humans, we're fathers and sons and daughters and uh, and uh, we can um, understand when we're in those circumstances when someone's at the end of a very, very long difficult journey how difficult it is for them. So it is a difficult circumstance to be put in but no, it pales in insignificance compared to the, the circumstances the families and, and the patient are in at the time that we're helping to provide a, a little bit of care to them. So it is challenging for us, but um, it is, I think, um, personally very rewarding for when the families and the patients um, welcome us into their homes and, and at a very, very difficult time. We know we make a difference because they give us a lot of feedback. Um, and so the challenge is offset by knowing that we've made a difference, and that's the most important thing at a very difficult time for for a lot of people. And no one knew when this legislation began how many people were going to take it up, but the uptake has been much greater than anyone predicted. Are you able to say what the numbers are that have been involved from your point of view? There will be a report coming out in the next few weeks from the Health Department outlining the numbers. Um, Originally, it was thought that there would be maybe 50 or so patients a year, 50 to 100 patients a year in Victoria um, that may... um, want to get access to voluntary-assisted dying medication. Um, our experience to date is, is that it's um, a bit more than that, um, and, but the figures will come out in the next few weeks. But, no, it has been a, um, um, a, a busy um, uh, time, and um, it's, patients are accessing the services, and, which is, which is um, good that for those patients who are, who are suffering um, or having intolerable suffering that they decide that um, they want to have a, a choice in, in um, how their life ends, in the circumstances in which it ends. So, yes, it has been busy, and um, that can be taken as a, as a positive way for patients getting access to 
services that they, they, they want to have access to. Well, certainly it wouldn't be happening without the input of the pharmacists. So it's wonderful that you and your team are providing this service. And I think it's somewhat un- under-recognised that for every patient who goes through this, the pharmacists go and talk to the doctors and to the patients and do a lot of counselling uh, and help them with this final stage of the process. So um, kudos to you all. Well done, Michael. And um, we look forward to seeing what the report at the end of the 12 months says and see where we go from there. Thank you so much for your time on the on the radio this morning. Thanks, Dr Nick, and I'd just like to say this, we have a wonderful team and there are wonderful voluntary assisted dying coordinators at various hospitals and the care navigators are fantastic and especially the medical staff who also have all these conversations. So it is a, it is um, um, very much a um, nice opportunity to recognise all those other members who have um, done a lot of work and made things a bit um, better for or easier for patients at such a difficult time. Thank you, Michael, and that's an absolute appropriate shout-out because it is very much a team approach. That was Michael Dooley from the Statewide Pharmacy at the Alfred Hospital. Um, just if this conversation has raised any issues for any of you out there, um, remember that you can, if you're concerned, call Lifeline on 131114. Uh, that number is 131114 if this conversation has raised any concerns for you personally. Um, we'll be back with a final conversation uh, with Prudence Dear right after this little break. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, Hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. And now on the telephone lines, we have, for the first time for a while, because uh, she's been a very, very busy woman, uh, we have Prudence dear. Are you there, Prudence? Hi, Dr Nick. Yes, I'm here. How lovely, lovely to, how lovely to hear you. You, had, you were doing some housing something or other last time. Oh, uh, yeah, the last time. That's right. I was kind of trying to move house in the middle of all sorts of other things. So, yeah, it got a bit, all a bit much, but I'm a little more settled this, this month. So, did it, yeah, go, did, did it go okay? Well, it's still kind of in progress, actually. But, yes, what we did that weekend was very successful, I can say that. I'm so pleased to hear that. Thank you. Thank (laughs) you for your care and concern. (laughs) um, Aged care hasn't had a great rap recently, so we've had a Royal Commission and now we've got COVID and all sorts of awful things happening to our older Australians. But I think you've got a slightly better piece of news Um, for us. Yeah, look, I thought we had a bit of positive news because, I mean, that's right, there's so many things going on. And I think, you know, especially around the, the, the... social isolation aspects of, of COVID as well, I think, and, and the, the highlighting the greater vulnerability for people of you know, certain ages, of which I'm rapidly heading towards one. You know, the social isolation is actually quite negative, and I thought, well, you know, there are some things here we can look at in terms of the greater good, not just for people's physical health, but also for their mental health, because the mental health aspects of the current situation are not great. And actually, interestingly, perhaps following on from what you and uh, Rainbow were talking about earlier, I think probably many of us who are that bit older are not really that connected through social media, which is which again, therefore, kind of leaves us somewhat sort of isolated. And I just stumbled across during the week, um, there's a study actually being run by Monash Rural Health looking at, that really highlighted the isolation and loneliness that, that are significant issues for people in aged care. And um, actually, interestingly, I thought it was a study actually that was trying to find better ways for medical students to to be more person-centred in their, their care approach for, for older patients. Um, but it 
the, the, the kind of review study was actually based on a program that had been run up in the Mali, um, which was encouraging aged care residents to tell their stories, to tell the stories of their lives, and to get volunteers to come into the facilities and help capture and actually transcribe those stories. Uh-huh. Now, there's a now there's a book at, as well. It's called Mali Living Histories, and it looks great. I haven't actually seen. I've seen you know copies of the cover and stuff, um, but I think you know it's just been published, and I think it would probably be a great read if you want to know a bit more about some of the lives of people who've lived in, in this state and and you know what it's been for and what changes they've seen. Um, so was this the, so was this study just looking at the process of doing it, or did it look at any outcomes? <laughs> Well, it looked at the outcomes from the perspective of, you know, what the program had done and how that might be useful, um, you know, for informing um, improved care. Um, But what they really found was, in particular, that that a couple of things, I think. One was that the people who participated, the the aged care residents, really actually came out of this this exercise, this program, with a real sense of accomplishment. For many of them, you know, they'd never been involved in a writing project before. And um, one of them actually was quoted as saying, you know, sometimes I get a shock myself when I look at it and I think, did I do all that? (laughs) But I must admit, it was a wonderful life. Um, And others have reported, you know, that they've, because there was a process of somebody coming in and sitting with them and transcribing them and listening to their stories, um, you know, they've actually developed enduring relationships and friendships with people. Um, it's really connected them back into the community and, that, and those connections have con- you know, persisted beyond the programme. And, that's, and a, know, yeah, that's a lovely point, yeah. isn't it? Because over and over again, when we look at the benefits of any kind of psychology, it's the connectedness with the other people. That oh, we is, know that, yeah. 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 And, it's so and, important having and, those connections. Absolutely. And hearing what you're saying also makes me think about rem- reminiscence therapy. Now, you're going to have to yeah. excuse me here because I know the name no. of it and I know nothing else about it, but I think this is an established field, isn't it, where you get older people to yeah. reminisce? Absolutely. Well, there's a number of ways that we can use all this kind of narrative and styles of narrative therapies. And absolutely, you know, there's, bi- there's bibliographic reminiscence-based narratives, you know, which are all sorts of ways that people, you know, where we place value on their experiences and their interests, you know, and where we can actually say that somebody's, you know, they're sharing a lifetime of experience. And the reminiscent stuff as well, I think, you know, has the potential to be very powerful because we, you know, we do, I think we forget, we all forget actually really good things. Mm. We have to remind ourselves at times to recall, oh, the lovely experiences we had or, you know, you know, you might be remembering, you know, yeah, when your kids were, were in the hospital and things like that. But, but, you know, there were lots of times which were wonderful and exciting and, you know, where you felt you'd done something really good. But we often forget those and we, we actually get overwhelmed sometimes by all the hard work and the negativity of our lives. And do you know, if in, real the, value. And do you know if in this study they looked at people who had dementia of any kind because it would be interesting to know whether taking people back because with dementia often your short-term memory is vastly impaired Mm. but sometimes that longer-term memory is pretty well preserved well that's right look in this study that that wasn't really one of these sort of objectives but you're absolutely right i mean i think the slightly different approach actually which is i think is effective with people with dementia is more around kind of creative sort of storytelling. In other words, rather than go, oh, tell me about a particular time, it's like um, uh, what what you can do there is like 
take pictures or photographs or something that stimulates the thought and let's talk about something and actually invite them to tell a story. It doesn't have to be factually correct. So not worry Again, too much about that engagement. Yeah, so not to worry yeah. so much about memory and facts. So do you know what this reminds me when I was a very baby doctor and worked in an aged care ward and I remember going to see this wizened little gentleman who was in a bed who had advanced dementia and was completely yeah. bed bound. I'd never met him before and all I could see was a very sad, demented shell of a person but at the bottom of his bed was a photograph album and I opened this album and there were the photographs of him performing in the Indian circus as a trapeze artist and I looked looked at that photo and then I looked at the person in the bed with completely different eyes because of course I couldn't have seen that unless someone had told me that story this time through pictures so, wow. I, so I think what the you other thing... You were ahead thing, of your time. I what? think the, <laughs> part of this study was really to look at how medical students were learning to interact with, with older patients and to see them, you know, as individuals with, with life stories and with histories rather than a diagnosis or something or, you know, writing them up for medications. And actually, it's not happening at the moment, again, because it's COVID, but part of that program is that the medical students go in and actually sit with, clients, with patients and spend some time to get to know them. What their about. Which I think is a lovely idea, and it's, it's something mm. which I, I encourage as my patients are getting older and risking becoming more frail and losing their stories, possibly. Uh, I yeah. encourage them to try and do this, put together a bit of a, an album or something. And I spoke to a, a woman the other day um, who's got very severe respiratory disease. She's on oxygen. She can barely mm. get out of the house now. And I said to her, this was about a year ago, I told this story about the man, the Indian man from the circus, and she brought in some photos. She said, all right, you said you wanted to see me when I was younger yeah. and fitter. Here's a photo. And there was a photo of her as a glam model when she was 19. Wow. <laughs> yeah. This person who's on a wheelie frame and on oxygen looked very, very different. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, and it's easy to sort of, you know, not see some of those things. Otherwise, I, 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 admit, I mean, I, I was thinking that you know, my father died 20 years ago and he had wonderful stories. And actually, I said to him, you know, a couple of years before he died, oh, you know, you should write all this stuff down. Now, my mistake was I should have said to him, oh, tell me those stories again, Dad. And I'm going to write them down or I'm going to go and get, you know, a tape recorder because back in those days we didn't have phones that recorded things. But, you know, I should, have, I should have recorded and transcribed those stories because I have them now as well. And I do wonder, you know, that this is sort of an exercise that we can do in our families. You know, it's like and for people perhaps visiting family members in aged care. I mean, I don't know, for some of them it might be a bit boring. And you wonder, actually, if you were to go in there and say, oh, look, you know, tell me that story again. Let's go through some of these re- recall, these reminiscences, knowing that actually, one, it's therapeutic, but also, you know, it's a way of capturing these life experiences that are perhaps are otherwise going to be lost for the entire family. And, um, I think there could be really something in that. And do we know if with this study that you were looking at whether uh, it led to any changes or any recommendations about what we do differently? It's still in train, I think. There is a whole review on it. It's, you know, um, but it, basically, yes, it's more about... Um, that, that, that students and doctors, you know, in order to understand more about their patients, should be spending time with them during their training so that they kind of get a sense of patients as 
people rather than, you know, patients as uh, kind of a list of pathologies. And so part of that, I think that part of the medical training will be that students will spend more time when they're doing, you know, um, aged care type work, that they will spend more time doing their training, not just looking at charts and stuff like that and medications and things, but actually sitting down and spending hours, a few hours with, with a few patients. It's an interesting point. I think you can never go wrong by asking people to tell you about their lives because there isn't a single person in the world who isn't happy to talk about themselves <laughs> i remember one time i was um, i was stuck um, when i was working for a locum service i was sent out at four in the morning to the outer suburbs of sydney i ended up in a house full of drug addicts i was a doctor of only 25 and these were hardcore addicts who were demanding medications i managed to extricate myself from the house only to discover i'd locked my keys in the car and i had to go back to the house to use their phone because there were no mobile in those days and wait for an hour to be rescued and I thought what do I do for an hour full of rather aggressive drug seekers and I just got them to tell me their life stories and they just talked yeah. <laughs> so, well you know and to be, well you know I'm a, I'm a counsellor and psychotherapist an awful lot of what I do <laughs> well, like, people and they tell me their stories right. Prudence thank you very much and I think that's a Pleasure wonderful next. tip for people with older relatives out there listen to what Prudence has to say get out Don't. there ask them their stories and, and yeah. put on that voice memo, record it, uh, write it yeah, down. Absolutely. Lovely That'd to talk lovely. to you, Prudence. We hope to catch you up again soon in person. Oh, yep. No. That'll be great. Hi, this is Panel Beta. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.